Well, here we are in the book of Judges, coming to the end of it. It has been quite the, uh, quite the journey through this book as we have seen so many things over the past several months, ways that God would direct our thinking as we consider our walk with Him and, and how we should consider our ways, and the warnings that are present within this, this book we only have two chapters left, and we're going to try to get through all of them today. Uh, so it's, you know, buckle your seatbelt, you know, as we consider this, this. This could be a bumpy ride as we try to get through this. And this could be a little bit of a longer sermon this morning. When we started talking about the conclusion to this book, we noted that it falls into really two stories that are designed to encapsulate the depth to which Israel has fallen as a nation. We've seen idolatry, brutality, immorality, gang rape, etc. And as we've come to the end of this book and we see how it's present within these cities, it's almost as if this isn't just isolated incidents within the nation of Israel, but this is like, this is just the MO for these people at this point in this stage of their lives. This is just who they are. They are thoroughly canonized. They have embraced the way of life that is so far from God and His Word and have chosen the things of this world so much so that the only thing that they deserve is to be wiped off the face of the map just like Sodom and Gomorrah were hundreds of years prior. But God is a gracious God. And He holds fast to His covenant that He made with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, so so much so that even though the people have forsaken the covenant-keeping God, He has not forsaken His people. Last week in particular, we saw that the, really what is in many ways the lowest points of the book of Judges, a people doing what was right in their own eyes, which ultimately led them to gang rape and murder of this young woman. This week we find the aftermath of that episode. The people finally seem to realize, hey, you know what, there's something not right here, and we need to, to deal with this. These things ought not to be. We need to make a course correction here. And so they rise together to take matters into their own hands, But as they go about doing that, they end up embracing solutions that further show their distance from their God. So often, not only are our own sins ugly and create a mess and create problems, but often when we begin to recognize, hey, you know what, these things aren't going well, I I need to change what I'm doing, I need to do something different, even our own solutions aren't what they ought to be. I can recall a time working with, a, with a, a co-worker who was expressing these troubles that he was experiencing in his life, different relational issues, and then he told me what he decided to do about it. And it was just like, dude, what? No, don't do that. that that's only going to create more issues. It's, going to, it's only going to make things worse. And so often that is the case. It only further demonstrates our own shortcomings. Or we're going to see that in the life of the people of Israel at this time. Let's move into our text again. This is right on the heels of the murder, the gang rape, and the murder of this young concubine. The the Levite chopped her up into 12 pieces and sent her across the nation. 
And now the people have received that and were shocked, and rightfully so. And now here is the aftermath, and here is what follows from that. So let's move into our text, Judges chapter 20, beginning with verse 1, where we see the first of the ugly solutions to this crisis. Judges chapter 20, verse 1. Then all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead. And the congregation assembled at one, as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. And the chiefs of all the people of all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword. Now the people of Benjamin heard that the people of Israel had gone up to Mizpah. And the people of Israel said, tell us, how did this evil happen? Of course, referring to what happened to this woman. And the Levites, verse 4, the husband of the woman who was murdered answered and said, I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin, I and my concubine, to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me, and they violated my concubine, and she is dead. So I took hold of my concubine, I cut her into pieces, and sent her throughout all the country of the inheritance of Israel, for they have committed abomination and outrage in Israel. Behold, you people of Israel, all of you, give your advice and counsel here. So we see this remarkable turnout at this event. The people have, have received this They've seen this, this portion of this woman, and there's clearly outrage that such a thing has been done. There's shock, there's outrage, and so now they are here to find out what has happened. This should not be, there's something wrong here, what happened? And so they hear the story, and the Levite explains what has happened. Though we noted a little bit of the ambiguity in his speech last week, it's not clear, again, who is the one who killed this woman? Was it the Levite, or was it the men of the city? So there's ambiguity in his words that leaves that a bit of a question for us. But now the people have gathered together. They want to know what's going on, and now they're ready for action to respond to this crisis in the land. So they say in verse 8, And all the people arose as one man, saying, None of us will go to his tent, and none of us will return to his house. But now this is what we will do to Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot, and we will take ten men of a hundred throughout all the tribes of Israel, and a hundred of a thousand, and a thousand of ten thousand to bring provisions for the people, that when they come they may repay Gibeah of Benjamin for all the outrage that they have committed in Israel. So all the men of Israel gathered against the city, united as one man. We see here the unitedness of the people. They are they're gathered. It's repeated multiple times. All the people. They arose as one man. They, they gathered united as one man. Earlier in the preceding verses, we saw that, that there were all the people that were gathered. And there's this emphasis, the chiefs of all the people, of all the tribes of Israel, that there's a great assembly here, and now they are united. They have one purpose in mind. One thought is on their mind. And they are united united together 
in their purpose, in their course of action, and in their resolve, they are going to repay Gibeah for her crimes. They carefully plan their attack. They establish supply lines. That's what it's talking about when it says we're 10 men out of 100 and 100 out of 1,000 to bring provision. They're establishing a supply train that's essential for times of war when you go out against war. If your supply gets cut off, if you lose provision, you, you'll starve. You won't be able to continue the campaign. So it seems that they're not anticipating just a little skirmish here. They're anticipating an all-out war, and they are making appropriate provisions for that war. And they are united in this purpose. You know, as we come to the stage of the book, I can't help but wonder, where, where have these guys been this whole time? As we've gone through this book, we, we, we see different points where the people of Israel failed to rise up and, and failed to assemble together, or at least were hesitant, and had to be called out to deliver the people. We saw that with Samson against the Philistines, how they didn't want to help him. We saw the hesitation to join Gideon and Barak and others. But now, now that the enemy is not just the Canaanites out there, but it's their own countrymen, now they gather together, now they band together for war. And we can't help but wonder if this is too little, too late within the nation of Israel. And so they say that we're going to cast lots to determine how we will move forward, who goes first. And then we see them. Talking to Benjamin, they're giving Benjamin, the tribe, an opportunity to do what is right in this moment, but they refuse. Look at verse 12. The tribes of Israel sent men through all the tribe of Benjamin, saying, What evil is this that has taken place among you? Now, therefore, give up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. They give an opportunity to Benjamin. Okay, they have committed this crime. They must pay for their crime. Hand them over to us and this will all be done. But at the end of verse 13, we see that the Benjamites would not listen. That's what the text says. The Benjamites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel. But not only did they not listen and deliver over the people, but they went up against Israel, verse 14, then the people of Benjamin came together out of the cities of Gibeah to go out to battle against the people of Israel. The people of Benjamin mustered out of their cities on that day 26,000 men who drew the sword, besides the inhabitants of Gibeah, who mustered at 700 at chosen men. Among all these were 700, cho- among all these were 700 chosen men who were left-handed Everyone could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. And the men of Israel, apart from Benjamin, mustered 400,000 men who drew the sword. All these were men of war. And so we see the battle lines being drawn. 400,000 men of Israel versus 26,700 men of Benjamin. It seems that the odds are very much, very much in favor of the people of Israel. They're 400,000 against 26,000. That is remarkable odds. 
The Benjamites were given every opportunity to do what was right and act in judgment of their own tribe, of their own people of Gibeah. But they declined that invitation and banded together to defend their city against the rest of Israel. But as we move forward in this next section of verses, things begin to get interesting as the people prepare for war and go out to battle. We see a series of battles that take place. Pick things up in verse 18. The people of Israel arose and went up to Bethel and inquired of God, Who shall go out first for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. Then the people of Israel arose in the morning and encamped against Gibeah. Few points of interest here. First, this is the first time now that we see the people inquiring of the Lord about how they were to proceed. In many ways, this echoes back to the very beginning of the book. And at the beginning of the book, we saw the same result of who shall go up first? Oh, Judah shall go up first. But but God gave a victory at that time in chapter 1 for the people as they went into battle. Well, here the people of Israel, they have failed to inquire of the Lord about even if they should go up at all. Notice their, their question is not whether or not we should go up. They've already decided. No, we're, we've decided on our course of action. This is what we're going to do. Now God tell us who goes first. And earlier in our text, I don't know if you noticed that detail, uh, back in verse, I failed to make a note of it here. Uh, verse 9. He says, we, this is what we will do to Gibeah. We will go up against it by lots. It seems that they, that they plan to cast lots to determine who would go up first. Back in those days, that was a common way to seek to discern and, and, and determine the will of the Lord. In fact, the book of Proverbs speaks to this. The, the, the lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. God's sovereign even over casting of lots. So it seems that the people and even the narrator recognize that the lot is going to be cast and they're deciding, okay, who goes up first? They cast the lot and it comes up Judah. And so they take that from the Lord. The Lord said, Judah shall go up first because that is what the lot says. And so they cast their lot. Judah's name comes up first. That's their conclusion. But it doesn't go. It doesn't turn out as they planned. Things take a surprising turn at this stage of this chapter. Verse 20. The men of Israel went out to fight against Benjamin. and The men of Israel drew up the battle line against them at Gibeah. The people of Benjamin came out of Gibeah and destroyed on that day 22,000 men of the Israelites. 22,000. Thousand men die in that battle. Why? Why, why did that happen? It did, didn't the Lord say for Judah to go up first? If, if God said, hey, this is the ones that should go up first, why did He say for them to go up only for them to be defeated? That, that question begins to come into our minds, and, and the tension in, within this text. It only begins to build as we continue to read on. The tension and the suspense grows as the story unfolds. Look at verse 22. But the people, the men of Israel, took courage 
and again formed the battle line in the same place where they had formed it on the first day. And the people of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until evening. And they inquired of the Lord, Shall we again draw near to fight against our brothers, the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Go up against them. Well, now they're asking really what they should have asked at the start. At the beginning, they didn't ask, should we go up? They said, no, we're going. Who goes up first? Well, now they ask, should, should we go? And they, perhaps they cast their lot again, and the answer is, yes, go ahead. Move forward. But again, things do not go as they anticipate. Verse 24, so the people of Israel came near against the people of Benjamin the second day. And Benjamin went against, went against them out of Gibeah on the second day and destroyed 18,000 men of the people of Israel. All these, men were, all these were men who drew the sword. Well, now we're up to 40,000 casualties of the Israelite warriors and not a single mention of any casualties on the side of Benjamin. Again, we must consider the confusion about what is happening. What's going on here? Why are we going out? The Lord has told us, yes, you shall go out. Judah goes up first. Shall we go up again? Yes, go up again. And we're only going out to be destroyed, to be slaughtered in the field. What is going on? Why is this happening? Isn't the Lord the one who told us to go out? Let's continue reading as this keeps unfolding. The tension continues to build. Verse 26, Then all the people of Israel, the whole army, went up and and came to Bethel and wept. They sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. See, the people are really devastated at this point. They're distraught before the Lord. They're at a loss of what is happening in this place. Verse 27, the people of the Lord inquired of the Lord, for the ark of the covenant of God was there in those days, and Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, ministered before it in those days, saying, shall we go out once more to battle against our brothers, the people of Benjamin, or shall we cease? And the Lord said, go up, for tomorrow I will give them into your hand. And they don't understand what's going on and why are we going out only to be slaughtered. We have 40,000 men who have fallen at this point. So they inquire of the Lord one more time, but their inquiry is different this time. Shall we go up once again or shall we cease? They, They provide the alternative to their question. And God's response is different this time as well. This time He says, go but there's a promise. For tomorrow I will give them into your hand. This time they are promised victory. And the rest of the chapter unfolds the, and records the result of that battle. This is a little bit of a longer text. I'm going to read through it. Bear with me as we go. Verse 29. <clears throat> so Israel set men in ambush around Gibeah. The people of Israel went up against the people of Benjamin on the third day and set themselves in array against Gibeah as at other times. And the people of Benjamin went out against the people and were drawn away from the city. And as at other times, they began to strike and kill some of the people in the highways. 
one of which goes up to Bethel and the other to Gibeah. And in the open country, about 30 men of Israel. And the people of Benjamin said, Ah, they are routed before us as at the first. But the people of Israel said, Let us flee and draw them away from the city to the highways. And all the men of Israel rose up out of their place and set themselves in array at Baal Tamar. And the people of Israel who were in ambush rushed out of their place from Merageba. And, they, and there came against Gibeah 10,000 chosen men out of all Israel. And the battle was hard. But the Benjamites did not know that the disaster was close upon them. And the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel. And the people, destroy, uh, people of Israel destroyed 25,100 men of Benjamin that day. All these were men who drew the sword. So the people of Benjamin saw that they were defeated. The men of Israel gave ground to Benjamin because they trusted the men in ambush whom they had set against Gibeah. The men in ambush hurried and rushed against Gibeah. And the men in ambush moved out and struck all the city with the edge of the sword. Now the appointed signal between the men of Israel and the men of the, of the, in the main ambush was that when they made a great cloud of smoke rise up out of the city, the men of Israel should turn in battle. Now Benjamin had begun to strike and kill about 30 men of Israel. They said, surely they are defeated before us as in the first battle. But when the signal began to rise out of the city in a column of smoke, the Benjamins looked behind them. And behold, the whole city went up in smoke to heaven. Then the men of Israel turned, and the men of Benjamin were dismayed, for they saw that disaster was close upon them. Therefore they turned their backs before the men of Israel in the direction of the wilderness, but the battle overtook them. And those who came out of the cities were destroying them in their midst. Surrounding the Benjamites, they pursued them and trod them down from Nohah as far as opposite Gibeah on the east. Eighteen thousand men of Benjamin fell, all of them men of valor. And they turned and fled toward the wilderness of the rock of Rimmon. Five thousand men of them were cut down in the highways, and they were pursued hard to get them, and two thousand men of them were struck down. So all who fell that day of Benjamin were twenty-five thousand men who drew the sword, all of them men of valor. But six hundred men turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Rimmon and remained at the rock of Rimmon for months. The men of Israel turned to get back against the people of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword. The city, the men, and beasts, and all that they found, and all the towns that they found, they set on fire. We see how the battle unfolded in the details of the text. It really, the text builds up to this point of the ambush when the men of Benjamin realize that they've been had. They were drawn out of the city. The ambush came in, destroyed the city, and their hearts fell, and they realized that their time was up. And Benjamin is destroyed. The holy war is complete. All but 600 men of the tribe of Benjamin have been slaughtered. And all this 
all of this is the consequences of Israel failing to do what they needed to do back in chapter 1. When we saw back in chapter 1 how they failed to drive out the Canaanites, how they, how they failed to do what they were instructed to do, and how they began to integrate with the people of the land and begin to be Canaanized. The zeal that the men of Israel brought to the table against their own countrymen here is the same zeal that they ought to have brought against the Canaanites back in chapter 1. But because it was not, the tribe of Benjamin became so thoroughly Canaanized that it seemed to them that the best option was to wage a holy war against them. Is this the solution that was needed? Only because God's word was rejected. Because Israel was rotting from the inside out. One way we can think of this by way of illustration is to think of of cancer. And for the sake of this illustration, let's just... Let's just suppose a preventable form of cancer develops in someone because of poor lifestyle choices. Say, how is that cancer treated? It's treated through surgery. We've got to remove the cancerous tumor from within a body. There's often forms of chemo or radiation therapy that's designed to kill any other damaging cancer cells within the body. But we know that in the process of this, it is not just the the, the dangerous cancerous cells that are affected, it is healthy cells that are affected as well. The whole body is damaged through the treatment process. It would have been easier, it would have been better to simply live a healthier lifestyle on the front end and to make healthy choices rather than to deal with the preventable form of cancer on the back end or even to deal with the cancer early on so that it would not progress. But when those things are not taking place, and when the cancer is ignored, it it grows and it spreads until the only option is a devastating option that harms the rest of the body. And in many ways, it seems as though this is what has happened within Israel. Rather than honor the Lord as king, they have forsaken him and have allowed a cancer to grow and to spread, and now it must be dealt with in gruesome ways. And I use that as an illustration, but in many ways that illustration falls short. Because it is not just that there is this, this cancer within the people of Israel, but if But if you can imagine having cancer and then concluding, okay, surgery is the way to remove this, and we may even say, yes, that's the right solution. This has to be dealt with. This has to be removed. But suppose a person says, you know what? I'm going to perform the surgery upon myself. That's not going to go well. It's going to create other issues, right? Well, that's where we are with the Israelites. This is an ugly solution. This holy war is an ugly solution. And it is devastating to the people of Israel. But their ugly solutions only creates another crisis that must be dealt with with yet another ugly solution. Look at chapter 21. 
chapter 21, verse 1. Now the men of Israel had sworn at Mizpah, No one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. And the people came to Bethel and sat there till evening before the Lord, and they lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. And they said, O Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel? That today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel. And the next day the people rose early and built there an altar and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. Now the people, they gather together and they are, again, despondent, distraught. Usually after a a great victory in war such as this, there's celebration. Yeah, we won. We were victorious. We've defeated the enemy. There'd be celebration. That is not what we see here. This is not the party victory that we would expect. They won, but at the same time they were defeated. Because their victory was against their own brothers. And so they cry out to the Lord, why has this happened in Israel? How did we get to this point? How did things come to this? There's almost an accusatory tone in their words, almost a sentiment of, why did you let this happen, God? This is, this is your people. Why did you let this happen? This holy war, not against the wicked Canaanites, but against the wicked Benjamites, who might as well have been Canaanites at this point because of how far they have drifted from the Lord. And now they're seeing that there's a problem here. There's one tribe lacking in Israel. They, they could not stomach that. They could not endure that. So they said, no, we're not, we're not willing to let a, one tribe be completely eliminated, eliminated and get it go extinct within our land. So they devise a plan. Verse 5, and the people of Israel said, which of all the tribes of Israel did not come up in the assembly to the Lord? For they had taken a great oath concerning him who did not come up to the Lord to Mizpah, saying, He shall surely be put to death. And the people of Israel had compassion for Benjamin, their brother, and said, One tribe is cut off from Israel this day. What shall we do for wives for those who are left, since we have sworn by the Lord that we will not give them any of our daughters for wives? So now the people recognize, hey, we're in a bit of a predicament here. They don't want this tribe to be eliminated, but they took an oath saying, we're not going to give any of our daughters to be intermarrying with them. It's almost the instruction that that when the people were coming into the land, God said, do not intermarry with the people of Canaan because of their wickedness. Well, now the rest of the tribe saying, are essentially taking that same oath, that same promise, except it's amongst people within their own tribe, their own countrymen, the tribe of Benjamin. So they won't intermarry with them. What are they going to do? And they have a realization. Aha! Who's missing here? Is there anyone who didn't come up because they took a second oath? The, the first oath, we're not going to intermarry with the people, of Israel, of the people of Benjamin because of their crimes. Well, this other oath, anyone who did not join us in this holy war, we will deal with them. He shall surely be put to death if they do not come out. And so there they think they have found a solution 
to their issue. Verse 8, they said, Who is there of the tribes of Israel who did not come up to the Lord at Mizpah? And behold, no one had come up to the camp from Jabesh-Gilead to the assembly. For when the people were mustered, behold, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead were there. So the congregation sent 12,000 of their bravest men, and they commanded them, saying, Go, strike the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead with the edge of the sword, also the women and the little ones. This is what you shall do. Every male and every woman that has lain with a male you shall devote to destruction. And they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man by lying with him. And they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. So they, they realized, okay, these individuals, they did not come out, so now we must fulfill our oath. They did not join us in this holy war, therefore they shall be part of the judgment end of the war as well. We're going to destroy them. But they had this realization, hey, those people weren't here to make this other oath about intermarrying with Benjamin. So we have our solution. We have our loophole in our promises. We're obligated to destroy this people, but since they didn't make the promise, we can take their daughters and their women and kill everybody else and give these virgins as wives for the remaining Benjamins who are still alive so that the tribe would not be blotted out. They think they found a loophole within their oaths. But if they were really seeking to adhere to the law of Moses, even those young virgins would have been considered under the ban. When there's a holy war and there's... there's People are to be destroyed in this way. They're not to leave anyone left alive, and yet they have retained these women alive. They think they've found a legal loophole, but they've neglected, once again, the word of the Lord. If this truly was a sanctioned holy war, they neglect that detail. But when God's Word is neglected and rejected, there's nothing else to guide them except for their own ideas, so, hey, why not? We'll do this. We think we, fa- we think we found a solution, but this still wasn't enough. There were 600 men who were left from the Benjamites, but they only found 400 young virgins. We're missing 200 more. So it's time to find more loopholes. Verse 13. Then the whole congregation sent word to the people of Benjamin who were in the rock of Rimmon and proclaimed peace to them. And Benjamin returned at that time, and they gave the women whom they had saved alive of the women of Jabesh-Gilead, but they were not enough for them. And the people had compassion on Benjamin because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. Then the elders of the congregation said, What shall we do for wives for those who are left? since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin. And they said, There must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin, that a tribe not be blotted out from Israel. Yet we cannot give them wives from our daughters, for the people had sworn, Cursed be he who gives a wife to Benjamin. So they said, Behold, there is the yearly feast of the Lord at Shiloh, which is north of Bethel. 
and on the east of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem and south of Lebanon. And they commanded the people of Benjamin, saying, Go, lie in ambush in the vineyards, and watch. If the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, then come out of the vineyards and snatch each man for his wife from the daughters of Shiloh. And go to the land of Benjamin. And when their fathers or their brothers come out to complain to us, we will say to them, Oh, grant them graciously to us, because we did not, we did not take them for each, man of, uh, of, for each man of them, his wife, in battle. Neither did we, you give them to him, or else you would now be guilty. And the people of Benjamin did so and took their wives, according to their number, from the dancers whom they carried off. Then they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and lived in them. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family, and they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. Once again, the people think they found a legal loophole in their oaths. They think, okay, well, we, if they give them willingly, they violate the oath because we said we won't do that. But if they just let them take them, well, hey, at least we didn't come against you in battle and destroy your whole cities. I was reading this week and someone noticed that, you know, perhaps they're adhering to the letter of the law in this instance, but they are certainly ignoring the spirit of it. They find these young women participating in some religious festival and they literally kidnap the girls, and force them to be the wives of these men. There is a, a tragic irony to these events. Daniel Block wrote in his commentary as he was commenting on this text, it does not seem to matter to the elders of Israel that these same Benjamites were only recently defending their fellow tribesmen after they had gang-raped a young woman. And now the rape of an individual has multiplied into the rape of 400 victims of war and 200 innocent merry maidens. Friends, this is where sin leads us. When we engage in sin and we let those patterns go on and it creates these messes within our lives and creates these crises within our lives and then when we continue to neglect the Lord and what He has said and we begin to try to conjure up our own solutions to the problems, we only create more issues and further compound our sin that we are in. In some ways, we think, okay, hey, it seems as though these people of Israel finally realize that there's something rotten in the state, right? There's something wrong here that should not be. And yet, their solutions to the issues only further demonstrate their own depravity 
and how far they have strayed from God and His Word. When, when we reject His kingship over our lives, even when we eventually come to a, the realization that there is a problem and that there is a serious cancer that needs to be addressed, if we fail to repent and turn to Him, even our solutions are going to be ugly. Even our solutions are going to be egregious. And the measures we take to correct what is wrong will only lead to more heartache and more disaster. This is where the people of Israel are. Having forsaken God as their king, having neglected his rule, having neglected his word and what he has said is right to do, this is where it leads them. And they didn't get there overnight. This isn't where they started. When they first started to to veer off the path of the word of the Lord, when they first started to to do what they thought was right in their own eyes, this isn't where they were. It was perhaps a small deviation here, a, a small departure there. But over time, as the generations went on, it only began to grow and grow, and the people began to drift further and further away from the Lord and His commands and His word. And this is ultimately where it ended up. And so with that, the author closes the book with one final verse as a punctuation mark to the book. In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Almost as if he's underscoring the point once again. That none of this was right in Yahweh's eyes. This isn't what the Lord desired for His people. The people had become a king unto themselves, and as a result, all of society suffered greatly. The book of Proverbs warns us that there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end is the way of death. The people of Israel are experiencing that firsthand here in the conclusion of the book of Judges. As we've noted several times throughout our pathway through this journey, this this book shows us the the depth of our own sin and where it leads us. It shows us our own need for a Savior. It showed, it showed the people here the need for the king. That was the refrain that, that they needed a king. They needed that strong leadership within their lives. They needed a godly king. And we've noted how the, throughout the rest of the Old Testament, as the Old Testament unfolds, that, that God provides them a king. King Saul was the first king of Israel. But he was not a godly king. So the Lord raises up King David, who indeed was a man after God's own heart. But even King David fell short of the standard of God's Word. We see throughout the rest of the Old Testament all the different kings that are raised up, and some that were okay, some that were godly, but for the most part, the majority of them were wicked, following after the sins of their fathers. It is only until we come to the New Testament and we come to Jesus Christ that we find the King that we are looking for, the King that Israel so desperately needed. 
the Messiah, Jesus Christ. When there is no king, when we reject the king, when we reject our Lord, it only leads to chaos. It is only through submission to Jesus Christ and Him and His Word that we find what we so desperately need over our lives. There's different points of application that we could make from this text about seeking out solutions and rooting out the cancer that we would find within our lives, the sin that might be present within our lives, even you know, we, if we are to make application towards New Testament church and, and think of the, the church and the church discipline as it's designed to purge the leaven from amongst your midst so that it doesn't grow within the body, etc. We can make different applications in different ways. But all of this needs to point us all back to Jesus Christ. He is our head. He is the King. And we need to bring ourselves into submission and subjection to Him. And so with that, we close the book of Judges. A cautionary tale. But a tale that should drive us into the arms of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how you have revealed your graciousness and your, your long-suffering with your people throughout the book of Judges. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be in subjection to you, Lord, that we would not to seek to do whatever's right in our own eyes, but that we would turn our eyes unto the Savior, Jesus Christ, what he has said, what you have said in your word, and follow after you and you alone. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.